Hey there. This is week two of What Next? An honest conversation with the Book of Acts. Tonight, Ben and I just talk about chapter two of Acts. And honestly, one hour is not enough time. But we do our best to kind of walk through what we find interesting and what we're thinking about right now. We'd love for you to join us in future weeks. You can find our kind of reading plan for this series on our newsletter, or you can register to join us live on Tuesday nights. So let's just hop into it. Here we go. We get into um, the, the conversation for tonight. I'm going to let Adam kick us off, but I'll, I'll open us in prayer if that's okay. Um, so let's pray. Good and gracious God, as we approach this day of Pentecost and we enter into this text of the coming of your spirit, we pray that your spirit might be upon us in this moment. Um, Might it guide our thoughts, might it inspire our lives, it might both challenge us, but also give us the courage to go about doing the good work that you've called us to do, both in this time and in this place, but also in the days and weeks and months and lifetimes ahead. God, be with all the people that are on this call and all the people who will watch it later. Um, May your presence be known to us both now and forever. In your son's name we pray. Amen. So. Amen. Awesome. Emma, I'm going to kick to you, man. Great. Uh, So today, you can hear me okay if I sit back, right? I don't need to lean forward the whole time. I think you're good. All right, cool. Um, Today we talk about Acts 2, Acts chapter 2. which might be argued to be one of the most formative chapters of the Bible for the Christian church. Uh, Maybe one of my favorite chapters. Um, And we're approaching Pentecost Sunday this Sunday. So um, it's fitting that we talk about it this week, right? Yeah. Uh, One of the things I wanted to do before we dived into the sections of the chapter which will Ben and I were going to be taking it this chapter in kind of three chunks. Um, we'll break that down a little bit later, but it's just kind of talk about the role of this particular chapter of the Bible for all sorts of different communities throughout the centuries and across the globe for Christian communities. Um, Acts two is this kind of interesting home base for the church in crisis mm. where when the church is facing all sorts of difficult uh, terrain to navigate, Acts 2 kind of is this, um, let's start from here again, and then let's bounce out, right? Mm -hmm. So one of the interesting early examples is that the Benedictine movement, the Benedictine monastic movement, really bases a lot of their rule, community life rule, around the events of Acts 2 from front to back. And then the Franciscans follow when they feel like the Benedictine movement needs a kind of refresher and a return. Um, But apart from that, it's also informed the way that um, there are these cells of radical Christians who live together and share things in common and um, exhibit mutual care for one another that are called they call themselves liberation cells or, or community cells in Latin America, throughout Latin America, El Salvador, Peru, Honduras. But 
that kind of um, community life has spread throughout the world. And that's also based on the events of Acts 2. Mm -hmm. um, the Catholic Worker Movement, which people may not be familiar with, but that's another kind of radical Christian community movement that seeks to live life in and among uh, the poor, with the poor. Uh, the Quaker Movement and the Anabaptist Movement generally, and the Methodist Movement, right? Like, Ben, is, am I wrong in, in suspecting that this is where the cross and flame comes from? Yeah, I mean, it's going to be the, the, the spirit, right, kind of coming in and using the, the combination of those two, like a, a, a church that's inspired by the spirit. But I use that language, too, not just in these movements, but also uh, in, in church planting. Yeah. Every person who's ever planted a church in their life will refer to Acts 2. Acts 2 is going to be the, the kind of the cornerstone of their experience as a church planner. Um, any type of uh, church that is going through a wave of, of expansion or like you said just a return to like maybe they got it wrong and they're just like we have to kind of start from scratch they're going to go back to acts 2 because it's the formational text for life together um yeah life and community so yeah and one of the one of the kind of prime examples that i'm always kind of interested in is um when the third reich in germany was kind of at the height of its power and in, in grasping more and more power, um, starting in 1935 through kind of 1939. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, this German theologian who some people may know, um, and political dissident, ran an underground illegal seminary in the small town called Finkebolde. Um, and it was all based off of Acts 2, and that's where the book The Cost of Discipleship comes out of. It's kind of the seminary and working out of like what Life Together looks like. And then there's another book called Life Together. Um, and yeah, I always find it really interesting. One of the things I almost proposed writing my thesis on in, at Duke was kind of the interpretation and use of this chapter um, in the life of the church in times of crisis. Yeah. So there's a um, lot it's a rich chapter. I mean, it's thick. Yeah. When, when Adam and I were originally kind of drafting this, um, kind of the study, this conversation, we originally, we originally had chapter two through nine tonight, which, um, after like five minutes of thinking about it, it was just, there's no way we're going to do this all in one night. Yeah. There's no way you can do that many chapters in one night. And in fact, like you said, you can write a dissertation on, three passages of scripture or like three verses, even one verse, um, one word probably in yeah. context of like reception history and how people receive this and how people have interpreted this text. So it's, right. really, it's, it's incredibly dense, um, not dense in a, in a dry way at all, but like dense and there is so much to unpack in this. The likelihood yeah. to unpack all of it is absolutely zero. Um, yeah. uh, but just kind of giving a little bit of a taste for, the things that we're interested in about it, but also that other people might be interested in too. Um, right. Crucial text. So. Yeah. Um, and just like as a quick aside, even the punk movement, uh, some, some aspects of like the East Coast punk movement have appropriated some of the language out of this. We'll talk about it when that language comes up. But I'm always excited when the punk movement and the Christian movement have overlaps. Um, <laughs> That seems appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing I just wanted to talk about two things really briefly is like we talked about last week, 
Um, it's likely that Acts was written between 80 and 90 AD. And there's an important political event that happens in 70 AD that I think is, this week's a good week to put it on the table. And that's the siege of Jerusalem, um, where Rome comes in and quashes a kind of a rebellion um, that Israel, some, some political groups within Israel were, were poising against the empire of Rome as a kind of liberation movement. And Rome comes in and just like sacks the city, right? And destroys the temple and it takes an enormous emotional and uh, theological toll on the people of Israel, right? Because for so long, Jerusalem has been seen as the kind of center of God's work in the world. Um, and that seems like an important thing to bear in mind as we read this first section that we're going to talk about. Yeah. Right. Um, when we get to that, will you, will you um, bring up why the, why you think those are important? Like, yeah. Oh yeah, sure. It's, it's important to hear. I mean, it's, it's like telling a story from 80 years ago for us. I mean, it, you know, there's, uh, and actually even after this, like after COVID-19, um, the way that we talk about uh, an event that happened 75 years ago might be different because we've lived through this or like after 9-11, like talking about World yeah. War II before 9-11 and after 9-11 just frames the conversation slightly different, right? Right. It's radically different in some ways. So, yeah. So, um, yeah, that's, that's kind of the, the kind of main big things is that this has had um, a rich reception history in place in the life of the church mm -hmm. and, and all sorts of different communities, and that it's being written with the kind of very recent theological and emotional needs of its audience in mind, right? Luke's audience yeah. that he's writing about. So the first section we're going to be talking about is, is um, what's typically called the Pentecost event, yeah. or Pentecost, uh, verses 1 through 13. Um, which, like, we could spend the whole night just talking about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you're going to get a lot of it on Sunday, so, um, so it will be okay if you listen in to Sunday's sermon. Um, yeah, so what's, like, the thing in this section, and what's the thing that, you know, if you look at the Pentecost event, if you, were to, if you guys have your scripture in front of you, um, or a Bible in front of you, if you don't, you can pull up just, um, you know, like a BibleStudyTools.com or whatever it might be, um, and look this up, but we're going to be in chapter two tonight. So the first like chunk, if you were to divide up um, chapter two, you kind of have three major things that happen. You have the Pentecost event, which is essentially verse one through 13. You have Peter's response like to the crowd, his first, like the first Christian sermon ever is like 14 uh, around through. I mean, you can argue the ends of the end of 41. Um, yeah. And then you kind of have this image of what the life of the community looks like afterwards. That's the third chunk. And we'll get to that in a second, but for this first Pentecost piece, the Pentecost event itself, and what's the what are like the things that stand out um, to you that you appreciate most of this about this part? Uh, I mean, there's there's like just the kind of um, whenever we read of, uh, accounts like this in the church, especially if we've grown up in the church, they can feel almost mundane, right? Like we're used to this imagery of tongues of fire coming from heaven and um, people speaking in other people's native tongues. Uh, but this is like a, I would love to figure out a way to make this strange and wild again, right? And like dangerous. It feels like a dangerous event. And the, I find the language of the recounting really kind of funny. Like 
on the day of Pentecost, great tongues of fire came down from heaven. You know, it feels just very like, this is what happened. It's kind of like how Luke narrates, uh, you know, Mary and the Holy Spirit. And, you know, yeah. um, it's just it's- it's a wild, I mean, it's a wild, if you just picture this, I mean, and the author does use, Luke uses some of the language that I think for, for, for people listening to it right in the moment, they're hearing things that we don't necessarily hear, like yeah. the sound of like a violent wind, the idea of a violent wind. I mean, yeah, we can picture like a tornado and what a violent wind might look like, but to a people who have just gone through a siege, through people whose story begins with the idea of creation and there being a wind that comes over and controls the chaos, yeah. Um, this is almost like we're hitting reset on like everything. And here comes that wind again, uh, you know, that we uh, have been told about in Genesis that we've heard about in Genesis. And here comes this fire that we've kind of seen in Sinai and that we've seen at other moments um, in the story of the people of Israel. And so like, I think the author is, you know, the, the, the factual nature of the story aside, the author is re- recalling these, um, telling us and telling the people then this is, this is like the, I mean, this is it. Like we're, we're hitting like the next kind of generation of what the people of Israel, what Christians, what people, uh, people of God will look like. Um, yeah. It's like the story of God is breaking open again. Right. Like, yeah, I love that. Rebirth. Um, yeah. yeah. The other thing that's, uh, that really strikes me is the list of, of all of the different uh, languages and um, locales of the individuals who are there, that it spans kind of the whole globe of Jewish people from all over the diaspora. Yeah. You know? Um, why, do you think, why do you think he does that? Yeah, I think that there are two things. Well, I mean, there there's a lot that you could kind of go into there. Um, but one, I think this is in part a move to by the author, by Luke, to say that um, the act of God has already reached all corners of the earth, mm-hmm. right? Since there's an audience from all corners of the earth yeah. there in Jerusalem at this event, the act of God isn't just located there, right? It's a kind of wide, expansive movement. Yeah. And the other thing is is the fact that all of those listeners hear it in their own native tongue. They don't all suddenly understand, you know, a singular language, but right. they're hearing it in a plurality of yeah. languages. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot to unpack there. I mean, like a lot. Sure. Uh, this is the foundation for why we think it's okay to translate the Bible, right? Mm-hmm. Um, this sets the groundwork for the church to decide that that's something we're willing to do and that we're going to do. Um, not people come to us, but us go to people. Not, not the, the story of God. People don't have to come to it, right? It goes. Right. Yeah, you don't have to learn Greek or Hebrew. Right. You know? Right. Um, mm-hmm. So, like, that's, or Latin. Um, that's, that's an important thing. Um, there's also, yeah, I mean, the, the ends of the earth, and the kind of uh, intimacy that we, we, you and I talked about earlier, you know, the kind of intimacy of learning somebody's language. I, you were saying some really interesting stuff that I was curious yeah. to hear more about. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, 
so to, to take, take a step back, I mean, kind of an explanation for why all these languages are there is that Pentecost is a word for 50 days, um, comes uh, 50 days after Passover, and it was already a, a festival going on in Jewish culture. So like they were in the city for this reason, like they were in the city for this, this already this festival that existed. Um, and when, and when they all gather there together, this is a, a recitation of some of the people who, who had traveled, who had made the pilgrimage um, to be in, in, in town and to hear it. And you just see all, you see this opportunity, the Holy Spirit moves upon these people. And, and yet yeah, the language of God goes to the people. The language of God, yes. not the story of God goes out. It's not um, drawing people in, it's the story of God bursting forth out almost as if it's bursting out of Israel and out of Jerusalem. These people happen to be there and it's about to burst out uh, throughout the whole entire story of Acts, but we kind of see this heat up. And I, you know, there's something beautiful about that language piece. I, um, the, the, the thing that has stuck out to me the most during chapter two is just the, the idea of speech, like the idea of what words mean, why words are important. Um, the, v, the, the medium, I mean, the fact that they're just a medium for conveying a message and, and kind of creating relationships and, um, and establishing meaning, um, that's kind of the basis for the way that we speak to one another. And the first thing that the Holy Spirit uses is this, is this deeply intimate medium, which is speech. Um, which I think is just really important. It's not that like the Holy Spirit came and, and wrecked uh, uh, necessarily like a, a village or like tore down an economic system. We'll get all into that in a little bit, but like it didn't necessarily come wreck all this stuff, but it goes immediately to speech and says, how can I get most intimately into the lives of other people? And it's, um, it's through this. So like speech to me is, is this, is, um, has the power to, to create worlds, to create new worlds. Uh, Barbara Brown Taylor had this quote, and I've used this in so many sermons now, um, it's a bit redundant, but she had this great quote where she talks about um, people being made in the image of God. God could have chosen us to, to be a number of different types of creatures. We could have been like swimming creatures and smelling creatures and whatever, you know, all different types of creature, creatures with wings, creatures that were, and the thing that God chose to make us was made in the image of God. And it's that we are speech creatures and we speak, we speak life and we speak um, uh, new worlds into being just as it was in the beginning with Genesis, God spoke creation into existence. We speak worlds into existence too. And so when we speak, we create community. We speak this new opportunity for a, a new world to blossom and bloom right there among us as a fellowship of people. Um, we create equity um, among us. Um, and when we're learning a language, we fumble it a lot because we, uh, we don't necessarily know, we, know, we don't know the right, if anybody has tried to learn a language before, you know that you, sometimes you just mess up and you're not going to get it right. And there's a level of, um, of humility that kind of needs to be showed both by the speech person and also by the person receiving the speech. And so there is this humility that's created with words. Um, and I think that we see that and, and it gets to this point of intimacy that you talked about in just a second, but there's also this fascinating thing, um, that I heard a professor of mine at Candler emphasizes this all the time. And he talks about the tower of Babel. He's a, um, 
he is a missiologist. So he talks about mission in the world and kind of goes mm-hmm. into evangelism. And the story of Babel is in Genesis. Um, it's the story of these people who create this tower because they kind of want to reach, you know, become the powerful people that reach up to the heavens and, you know, we'll build a tower here and we'll reach up to the heavens and to God. Um, and the tower is wrecked. And up until this point, everyone was speaking the same language. But when God breaks the tower and causes it to crumble, he scatters the people and they go into their different places speaking different languages. And a lot of people think that that is a curse against people for trying to be like God again, which is kind of the early Genesis story with Adam and Eve, trying to be like God again and trying to get up to God's level um, and not showing humility. And the professor of mine, the missiologist, says that, no, it's not a curse against um, people trying to be like God. It's it's a cur- it's kind of a curse or a reaction to people trying to have sole exclusive authority or there being one dominant language or there being one dominant yeah. But instead, blessing all of the different cultures that already exist among us. And Pentecost is the fulfillment of Babel. If languages were created at Babel and they all scatter into different stretches of the earth, this is where um, the blessing of that takes place with the Holy Spirit, where we can now connect the dots among the different languages. Um, and that it shows that the links to which God goes uh, aren't limited to to speak to, to really to speech or to language in general. So I don't know. Yeah. The speech piece is the big part. And I know that we talked about intimacy for you. I mean, you know, intimacy is a huge piece of, um, of yeah, that's kind of the thrust of the whole chapter for me is, is a kind of like radical intimacy with the pouring out of the Holy spirit onto flesh, right? This like joining of the, the work and movement of God through yeah, through our bodies together with one another and in our kind of most, yeah, like you said, kind of most intimate space, our language um, is, is one expression of that kind of active embrace um, that we see in this text by the Holy Spirit, you know. Um, the other thing, yeah, uh, I like the hearkening to Babel a lot. That's yeah. really great. Yeah. And yeah, the other thing that really stood out to me is that just remembering that um, this crowd that's watching this group of people speak in their native languages, like this group of people are fools, right? Like they come bearing the message of a failed Messiah and the group of, you know, to the, to the crowd of onlookers. Like the, the crucifixion of Jesus was like a big deal, right? If they're there for the Passover kind of a festival that's been going on the whole time, this crowd probably bore witness yeah. in some way to those proceedings, yep. right? And there's only, there's this group of 150 firm believers who are still together yeah. um, and they're, Galileans, you know, like they, they're country folk. Yeah, I love the line in there. That's one of my favorite. This is like the best line to me is that, um, um, (laughs) yeah, it's chapter two, verses seven. uh, Amazed and astonished. They hear all these, so they hear all the people talking. It's all these 120 people and they're speaking the languages of everyone else that can be heard. And and they're from Galilee. Most of these people are from Galilee. 
And it says, amazed and astonished, they asked, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? It's as if they could hear their Galilean twang. You know? <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, yeah, it's like, you know, being from Johnston County and going to Paris and trying to speak French. Um, and right. like, yeah, that person is clearly not French. But it also just, but to be honest with you, that's another level of intimacy of the sense of like God using, God not trumping um, in trying to create one language for all people to understand. Right. Using, using these ordinary, unqualified. Yeah. I hate to say dimwits, but in some ways, they like that, you know, it's a collection of kind of interesting people. I mean, you've got some people who are probably well educated, but you got some country folks in there and these people who have like followed Jesus along the way. And there's yeah. these, um, these people who are underqualified by all standards of like Roman culture and, and, uh, Jewish culture, these are not the right. people to be going in and preaching this message or to go out on a limb and start preaching this like radically new thing. Uh, but you know, you can hear it in their accents. These people are these Galileans. Well, that was funny. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what I love about this. It's like, yeah, it's insane. And that, that the Holy spirit, um, isn't summoned by them, right. That they're not, they, they don't bear this authority through what they've learned or spend time with Jesus. They bear this authority through pure gift of the Holy Spirit, right? Um, that this is just like the Holy Spirit is actually doing the work here through them. Um, and I really, yeah, I like that. Yeah. And that the Holy Spirit would choose such unlikely, um, easily dismissible figures for this yeah. to take place in. Yeah, yeah. So let's pause there for just a second because we got a couple of questions, and that's kind of the first chunk on Pentecost. Um, and you want there's one on the there's one on the chat that we get that we got uh, talking about people speaking in tongues. Um, this being the you know talking about this piece. So this is not so Pentecost is not the same thing as like the spiritual gift of speaking in tongues that's later referred um, uh, by Paul. Um, this is going to be. Um, so the reason being is that the, the speaking in tongues is often a, uh, it's more of an insider type of, I hate to say it, it's a more of an insider type of thing, but it's the language of God coming out of someone and someone hearing it and being able, it's kind of this internally focused type of thing that's taking place. Um, I've heard people, I've heard tongues spoken a couple of times in life. Um, and it is it, to me, it's just interpreted as kind of like babbling. I mean, I, I don't, you know, I can't understand it at all. I can't decipher it, but it's definitely much more of an internal. I think this, the difference between that and this is this is an external focused language and it's the language conforming to that culture so that not an, not an, in, an insider is not hearing it. An outsider is actually hearing it. The language is going to the people outside. So it's a slight, that's a great question. Um, because we hear the word tongues and we think it's the same thing, but it's actually two different, two different things. Um, yeah. And then we had another question in the Q and a, did every, everyone around see the tongues of fire? Um, I think if we're sticking firmly with the language of the text, we could argue that probably the, um, all, all sudden and suddenly from heaven, there came sound like the rush of a violent wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting divided tongues as a fire appeared among them 
yeah. and a tongue rested on each of them. So the, the language of appeared makes it seem like it is an objective kind of thing. Um, but but it's taking place in a house, you know, like um, in a room yeah. where they were waiting. So the, the interesting thing too is some of the language there, because I got, I was looking this morning into the violent wind language a little bit, and um, it's, um, it's an analogy, it's an, an analogy like, in its nature. It's, it's saying, and suddenly from heaven, it didn't say there came a violent wind. It says there came right. a sound like a violent wind, and, um, uh, and then divided tongues as of fire appeared. Right. Uh, so, you know, is that something to be seen? I'm not sure. I think that the experience piece is probably the more important than the visual imagery um, for folks. Uh, I mean, that would be my first question. That. Great question, though. Cool. Yeah, Sandy, I'm going to talk about that in a second, just so you know. Awesome. Sweet. So chunk number two. Um, and I'm gonna let you kick this one off because I think you've got a lot to say on this. Uh, you said something a little while ago, um, talking about kind of the the foolish claim of Jesus. Uh, yeah. And I'm wondering how you see that in light of Peter's sermon. So chapter, so verse 14 through 30. Like I said, you could say it goes, it kind of ends technically at like 36, uh, but then he continues because there's some questions and some clarifying things afterwards. And so it continues on to 41. But this is the first, really the first Christian sermon. I mean, this is numero uno. Um, this is the model, you know, it's the first time. You also have to give, there's some, there's some weaker parts, you know, some may say, give him Peter, he's just trying it out, getting his preaching legs under him. He's never done this before. Yeah, I was going to ask you how you read this as like a preacher. Yeah, yeah. We'll get, yeah. We'll get to that in a question. I want to hear your thoughts, though, on, because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come back and assess Peter in just a second. But I do want to hear your thinking on like this message that these people are hearing for the first time. I mean, this is a, mm -hmm. this is Peter essentially interpreting what has just happened um, and then, and then kind of giving it this first go round of kind of proclaiming the gospel um in this way so yeah i mean i think there are a few things to note which is just how how much of peter's sermon here is just direct quote from hebrew scriptures right from the book of from joel's prophecies and from the psalms uh, so that's one thing to note. um the other thing is sometimes when we read this we can we can forget, we can think Pentecost is the act of including Gentiles into the story of Israel, right? Um, but as of this point, this is still an internal kind of Israel event, right? This is happening among the people of Israel. And when you really pay attention to, the, to Peter's sermon, it's very clear that it's directed towards his fellow Israelites, right? He's using their stories, he keeps addressing them directly. Um, and then, but the, the real thing that I love about this is his use of the Joel passage, um, particularly in the last, starting in, 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 in verse 17, right? In the last days it will be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your 
Young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my slaves, both men and women, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. This, um, what we're starting to see even in this first sermon is that the movement of the Holy Spirit among the people um, upends our typical notions of social order, um, of divine election, right? Of this notion of like, some people are made to be slaves. Some people are made to be masters. The reason that it's separated that way is because God, you know, has specific provision for or blessing for the master and the slave doesn't get to participate. And this selection in Joel is upending all of that, right? It's uh, the emphasis on all flesh is a really radical emphasis. Yeah. Uh, and that Peter is invoking that at this moment is a really radical social and political claim and theological claim, right? Yeah. That uh, is building off of the kind of like thing I love about like, it's a bunch of Galileans. Mm-hmm. you know, who get to do this. A bunch of fools who believe in a, a defeated Messiah, you know? Right. Yeah, I love that, the idea of um, what, what you're saying there of like, I mean, framing this in the conversation of, this is Peter talking to his the home team, like at the beginning, like kind of starting with the the, the people who need to hear this the most. The people who don't necessarily need to hear the gospel the most, I mean, those are people who maybe haven't hear, heard it at all, who know nothing of it, but the people who right now, um, it's kind of like just having a family meeting almost, you know, where he's kind of like saying, all right, we missed the, we've missed the mark. Some of us, some of us here among us have missed the mark before we, before we step one foot out into this world and preach to Gentiles or anyone outside of Jerusalem or these city walls. Like you need to hear this first, um, and kind of preaching like that. I, you know, that's something that we often overlook. You, you made the point of saying that we often think this is external looking, and it's not. This is a this is a sermon for um, the insiders, right? Right now. Yeah. Yeah. Which yeah. Is, yeah. Sorry, you freeze a little bit. I froze a little bit. Oh yeah, did you freeze? Yeah. I thought you were saying something, and I didn't want to interrupt. Well, I think um, it kind of goes to you asked the question just a little while ago. Um, of like kind of thinking about Peter's sermon. And I think you, you, when you look at Peter's sermon, you have to accept it as a, as a sermon that is preached to the people who have heard of Jesus probably, um, you know, and are part of the anti-Jesus kind of wave that, that took place. And I mean, this is a, there is there, it's his kinfolk, but it's the people that disagree with him. Um, yeah. That being said, you can see why he uses some of the harsher language that he might use. Um, the thing about, you know, there's a, um, I heard Stanley Hauerwas say something like this like a week ago. He said, uh, the most foolish person on earth is the man that stands between two Jews arguing. And there's a sense in which, like, the way that the Jewish community handles its business, they'll, they'll argue back and forth with one another all day long, and then they'll come and they'll love each other no matter what, right? And they'll give each other yeah. a as if no argument has ever happened. And I think there's a little bit of that here too. Um, you know, he uses some pretty harsh and critical language. He says like, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. He said some things like, um, you crucified him. Um, this is the guy you killed. Um, this, yeah. this. And so he's being a little bit tougher with his folks, but I think he's also, I mean, there is some, 
the irony of that one passage, that one line of save yourselves from this corrupt generation. I mean, the irony of it, the whole thing is that they, he's, what he's saying is you can't even save yourself, save yourselves, but really, really like this is something that you can't do. But I think he's yeah. to turn towards the Messiah who can, um, and that's the invitation there. Um, but yeah, it's an interesting, it's interesting to kind of assess this sermon and to think about what's the purpose of it. Who's he speaking to? Why is he used the language? I mean, you, you made the point earlier of Joel. Now I'm just rambling. So cut me off if you need me to. Um, but Joel, him using Joel as like his primary reference point, but that's kind of what all pastors do. We always find something that the community knows. Uh, we <laughs> references and then we cling sure. to that and use that as the teaching tool. And there's a sense in which uh, he's taking this text that all of them know and all of them love their text and saying, this is your text in the light of the resurrection. Um, yeah. and a brilliant pre I mean, this is what preachers do is they find the, they exegete, they kind of assess their community um, and they try to, that's the hermeneutical twist. And they try to connect the dots between their community and the text it's, or the, the message of the gospel of Jesus. So, yeah, and to, just to that point really quick, I think that this is something that um, is just a helpful thing that was really drilled into me into from my professors, is that when we're reading this, one of the reasons that I wanted to just point out, like this is a conversation within Israel, it means that when you and I read it as Gentiles, it's like we're overhearing a family argument, right, that we, to, of a family that we don't belong to, right, right? Um, and in some ways that means we don't get to participate. Like we just listen and learn from the argument here. Right. Um, and I think, I think that that's just an important thing to frame for so often, so long Gentile Christians have been taught that like this text, all of it front to back belongs to us and we're the authoritative, yeah. uh, interpreters of this text. And when we come to moments like this, it's helpful to remember, like, oh, actually, Gentiles were not a part of this conversation at all, you know. Right. Um, and we, we're in a position where we're, like, we're learning a language, like we're learning the customs of a people, like we're joining a new people. We have to sit and listen and learn as they talk. Right. And this is an example of that happening. Yeah, absolutely. So... So there's one comment on here that someone made um, that I love, and this is just echoes our point. Uh, uh, she said, I love how Peter ties in the Old Testament with the New Testament and demonstrate that this is the same God moving in their lives um, now as it was back then. Uh, yeah. And, and that's true. I mean, this is not a, um, this is not necessarily the mark of something uh, brand new, but a trajectory that might look different, right? Or have a, a different, um, a different moment, a different phase of, of something else. Right. So the other thing, yeah. If we're going to go all the way to like 42, can we just bump all the way to 42? Yeah, let's jump. Yep. All right, cool. So if we're going to expand this chunk all the way to 42, um, yeah, the, the save yourself, like you brought up, save yourself from this corrupt generation became a, a slogan of the kind of East coast punk movement in the eighties as they were like calling for living a different way. Mm -hmm. Um, and what I think that the punk movement got right about selecting that verse is in the context of this, 
um, we can often think, you know, like, oh, Peter is unfolding this so that everybody will come to intellectually believe hmm. in, in um, Christ as the Messiah, right? Yeah. But Peter's not just calling for you to believe intellectually. He's calling you to live in a radically different way, right? He's making a radical social claim about what the work of the Holy Spirit and what following Jesus now looks like for how you live your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a, this is a, the, the act of saving yourselves is the, I mean, again, the, I think the irony is that they can't do it. I mean, that's the difference between right. the punk movement and the Christian movement is the, um, the punk movement believes it can, the Christian movement says, we'll try, but we know at the end of the day, it's not us that's saving it. But it is a call to live differently, to be more, to be, um, to be seen as different and as a, um, as a different way, um, as the way, right? Like, like, I mean, that's the language of the early church. Uh, yeah. We're still called the way, right? They're not called Christians yet. So, um, so it's this interesting thing that's, that stood, that they stood out and they were different, but it's a great. Point. Yeah. So that's, that's kind of the big question for me this week is like, what does it mean for us to believe this text? Right. Like how, how can we bear witness to the event of the Holy Spirit pouring out on all flesh today? Yeah. And maybe, maybe the next chunk will give us some insight into that, but yeah, I'm not sure. That's a great, that's a great, I mean, it's a great question. That I think all of us wrestle with, I think at some point when we kind of understand what the Holy Spirit is, begin to kind of wrap our heads around the Holy Spirit is like, but something that we, but something that also we, I don't think we ever really answer, right? We never answer fully. Oh, uh, sure. I have to keep asking the question over and over again, right? Uh, yeah. It's the, it's the less the life of faith in general. Yeah. Cool. Was there a third? Was there a last question there? I think we got those questions. Um. Sweet. So let's move into this last chunk then, uh, because this chunk I think is the piece that that you mentioned earlier. You talked about. Um, a way of life uh, mm-hmm. um, of this being inspiration to a lot of people, a lot of different movements. And I think this is the part of the text where it, it has shaped people's movements. I mean, we kind of got it with the save yourselves with the punk movement, but now that we're at the back end of chapter two, um, starting essentially with verses 42 through 47 till the end. Um, I mean, this is the thing that this is the, this is the image of the church the first church, um, the initial church, like, what do you think, like, what are your thoughts on this? What do you think that this is a, a realistic model for the church? Is this a, a, um, a, uh, an example we're supposed to live into, or is this a loose structure? I mean, yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah. What I really like, uh, I, 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 I mean, you know, me, some people may not know, this is probably one of yeah like my favorite passage i like to slam this one all the time um the um and if you haven't read it and you're following along just you should you know just google real quick acts 2 43 through 47 it's, it won't take you long to read um but the kind of big things is all who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Um, day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate food with glad and generous hearts. 
praising that. Um, yeah, I think to suggest, as some have tried to suggest to me, that this is an unrealistic way of living life together. But then also to suggest that the Pentecost event happened or that the resurrection happened mm -hmm. uh, is an interesting <laughs> contradiction that I would like to um, just challenge. Yeah. If we believe that God can conquer the dead, right, conquer the grave, if we believe that God can appear as tongues of fire and help us speak in languages that we've never spoken or that that event has happened, Far be it from us to suggest that like we can imagine living a life of intimacy and radical care together with mm -hmm. one another, right? Like who are we to say that like the work of God can't extend even to our social life? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think, I think that this is maybe not, uh, I'll be honest. I want it to be the model. Yeah. I want it to be the goal, the thing, right? Yeah. Um, that this is what the church is and is supposed to do. Emily and I uh, in San Antonio lived in community with people and, you know, we're part of this new monastic movement that is also built out of a reading of Acts 2. And yeah, we sought to share all things in common and we called our community common worship and um so I want this to be the model, and I recognize that in our current age, that seems absolutely unreasonable. Yeah. And, yeah. and if we can't do that, if, if, if we can't reach to those heights in this space, that doesn't mean that we're not following the Holy Spirit. I'm not trying to suggest that. But mm. Mm. I don't think we should dismiss it as quickly as people are ready to dismiss it. Yeah. You know, I think... Um, I think it's fascinating how, uh, so like you can take these passages of scripture that we look at and that we read for a long time and they become stale after a while. And this is yeah. where you try to like, you try to like, um, you try to play it off as it meaning something else, as it meaning as like we kind of smooth like sharp edges of these texts a little bit too much so that we can swallow yeah. them. Um, but they, but then a crisis comes along and rocks us in a way that um, causes us to question, not question, but causes like all questions kind of a faith um, to be back on the table and how we respond to faith and what, and what the church should look like. Um, yeah. You know, and it seems like for generations, the church keeps coming back to Acts 2 as the model and some accept it as being a literal vision for what the church should be. And some say, yeah, but it doesn't really mean that. It kind of means just something else. Right. But for me, just the way in which our church has responded to, uh, to how it's given so much to the community around us um, in the recent weeks, it's been the best example of the church that I've seen of, of, of really yeah. I've seen in a long time. And, and there's been a lot of just giving that and there's no questions asked. Um, yes. There's a lot of stuff where it's like, it's not a, it's what happens after hurricanes. It's what happens after a lot of these crises, a lot of these tragedies, when all of like the, yeah. the, um, when all of the materialism of the world is just kind of wiped away and it's just human and human. It's just kind of child yeah. of 
child of God. Let's see how we can make this work. That's the amazing thing that happens. And that's the amazing thing that other people take note of. Um, and it sometimes takes, yeah. unfortunately, it just often takes a crisis um, for people to actually live into it in some ways. Um, yeah, I think, um, I think that this is maybe where also you're and our shared history in the nonprofit world. Yeah. I know that we were in kind of different parts of the nonprofit world, but maybe your time in like Teach for America or um, yeah. being a U.S. history teacher, you saw some of this too, is recognizing one of the reasons that I've clung to this text so much um, is recognizing that like, yeah, that, that urgency is felt every day by people, even before COVID-19. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like in our, in our neighborhoods, it's felt that like the real concern about where a meal is going to come from yeah. is felt that way. Yeah. But I, I fully agree. I've, I've been filled with gratitude and joy and great, uh, yeah, uh, encouragement by the response of our community to the need and, and carry right now. Yeah, you know, it's, I'm going to, I shared this with the staff in the, um, in the staff meeting uh, a couple weeks ago. Um, the conference call we had, I had to do the devotional, and I did um, this little story. Um, I sent a lot of phone calls over the course of uh, the month that are with other pastors from other congregations, all in Wake County um, as part of an organization. And we kind of hear the concerns of one another. We were talking about COVID-19. We were all reflecting on it. And this older gentleman who's a pastor um, at a small African-American church in Southeast Raleigh, I mean, kind of one of those highway side Baptist churches type things where, you know, they don't have a lot of members, but they are there every Sunday. Um, you know, he, he says to everyone, there's a hundred some odd people on this call. And he says to everyone on the call, um, you know, I just got to say, like, this is the way my community has always lived. Y'all are talking about like people in your communities losing jobs. You're talking about how people in your churches are starting to become lonely and feel like they can't go places. They're socially isolated because they can't go out into certain parts of the community. And they are um, concerned for their health and well-being. They're not sure where their next meal is going to come from. They don't know if their kids are going to like pass this grade level or not. And he just kind of silenced everyone by essentially saying, this is how my community lives each and every day. So on behalf yeah. of everyone in my community, welcome to this crisis. Um, you know, and it kind yeah. of put everyone up in the, on the phone call because a lot of us come from places um, where, where the church doesn't look like this, but this is what the church looks like, I think, in, in a lot of those communities. It's just the reality of, like, we'll pool our money together to buy the spare tire or whatever, you know? And Yeah, that's exactly right, yeah. Yeah, and I've seen community. Yeah, I've seen small churches in in Durham and other places pull money together to make sure that a student got to place a deposit down so that they didn't lose their spot in college. Right, when nothing else. I've like radical acts of generosity. Yeah, um, yeah, it's making me tear up right now thinking about. It. So I'm not trying to suggest that it doesn't exist right now. Right. This kind of like radical generosity does exist all over the country. Um, in the church, but yeah, it just looks so odd in, in normal times, right? This this model looks so unusual in normal times, but in the time of crisis, when push comes to shove, and 
people need it. This is the model that everyone yearns for, right? This is yeah. the down inside. I think all of us really want when everything else about our lives is kind of stripped away. We all want this. We all hope that that's going to be the case when there's a crisis that happens and we need support from our um, brothers and sisters and siblings in Christ. Uh, so anyways, and real quick, what I just want to say, because I realized I didn't say it, and it's an important thing to say. What's key for me in this is not necessarily the economic redistribution or anything like that. I think that that's an important part, but I think it's born out of a real um, affection and intimacy among the people where they understand the real needs and vulnerabilities of one another, right? That it's coming from that place of connection, not for... Um, an ideological commitment to like, oh, we should all be equal, but it's coming from this recognition of one another's vulnerability and need. Much like this, uh, much like the meal program at FUMC Carry, right? That's born out of a real recognition and it's grown multiple times because y'all are recognizing like, oh, the need is bigger, you know? Yeah. So anyway, I just wanted to say that I'm not, yeah. I never want to reduce like the work of the Holy Spirit to like an economic ideology. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, it's born out of the, the sharing. Um, I mean, when they say sharing all things in common, I don't think that they're talking necessarily just about uh, their goods. But it's, yeah, it's all of it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Okay. We got a few questions. Here. I could have talked about that. Yeah. Yeah, you. Yeah, I know you would have. We would have been here till next Tuesday. Um, That's exactly right. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, so there's a couple of questions on here. I wanted to, well, Adam, let's just go back and forth and answer some of these. So um, someone asked, what wonders and signs did the apostles uh, they saw in, um, in verse 43? Well, I mean, so, you know, Peter is later, like a lot of the stuff that they're seeing, um, I, my view of this whole chunk, and I talked about this, Adam, when I preached on a couple of weeks ago, you and I spoke about it, is I see this as like, everything from 42 to 47 kind of being this montage of just what life looks like. It's like in the movies when yeah. they pan across a long period of time, it's not all just like this didn't just happen immediately afterwards. This is maybe as years afterwards until we get to, um, to perhaps the next event in the story. We don't really know how long the time lapse, but I do think that the miracles that are taking place that the apostles are doing are the very same real miracles that Jesus is doing. Like Peter is going to heal people. Peter is going to raise people from the dead. Um, and it's going to blow people's minds. Um, but I do think that, uh, but there are also some just wonders and, and signs that are seen probably in the life of their community with one another. I mean, it could be as, um, as real as the stuff we're seeing, where it's a miracle that a kid gets his college tuition pay payment done by a church. I mean, little things like that. Yeah. So, everything in between. Great question. Yeah. yeah. Oh, no. Okay. Um, yeah. You good? Yeah, sorry. I lost, I lost everything for a second. I got very nervous. Cool. Um, the section seems to be saying there one denomination not divided by beliefs at this point of the movement yeah yeah i think i think um the notion of denomination will emerge later there will certainly be internal conflict in this um about belief yeah and then we see that something is at stake for this community about what it believes but at this moment yeah they're one people joined together by the holy spirit 
And I think that that's really the kind of thing that we're supposed to read out of it. Yeah. Do you mind if I talk about this next one? Go for it. Uh, verse 44 says, all who believe were together. Do you think Gentiles were part of this group or was it just Jewish Christians? Verse 41 says 3,000 persons were added, trying to figure out who those folks were. So um, I do think we can, um, earlier on in the book, it says that um, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, um, in verse 10. So there are Roman converts to Judaism who are certainly participating in this community. But I think right now there's some good reason to suggest that everybody here considers themselves part of the Jewish faith, um, or, con or at least a convert to the Jewish faith. Mm -hmm. Also, the reference to 3,000 was saved. Uh, you brought up Mount Sinai earlier, Ben, mm -hmm. and I forgot to bring this up. At, at Moses' descent, when he sees the people worshiping the golden calf, 3,000 people are um, there. Smitten? Smoked? Right. I don't know the word. 3,000 people are destroyed at the base of Mount Sinai. Then 3,000 people are added to the people of faith here at Pentecost. So it's another interesting mirroring that's happening. Yeah. Anyway. That being said, the church went from like small town, local church to like mega church in two verses. Yeah. Uh, which is, um, which is just a, a, a very realistic thing that could happen though. in the preaching of this, I mean, there's clearly a significant number of converts, the exact number, the round number 3000, um, might be kind of a, a reference to the Mount Sinai piece, but I think that there's no doubt that there were people that were added. Um, yeah. Significant. Yeah. Cool. Um, yeah. the question. So the question here is how do we keep this level of being the church to our community after this crisis? Um, how do we keep a crisis level of love and dismissal of materialism? Um, I think um, there is a real urgency for us to continue being in community with one another. And I, while, I, while I agree that um, we are socially distanced, there are ways in which people are connecting online and actually being probably more engaged in the life of a small group than they were before this happened. So I think that there is a beauty of that. Um, I will say that it is, it is difficult to be a church of as, as large as First Carry is um, and to do it well. I will say under the leadership of Carl, we've done it incredibly well. Um, and I will say that with the lay leadership that we have on our team is really well. But it, it starts at a smaller community. To do this really well as a 4,000-person church in mass is difficult. And I think it, it goes to show that local relationships um, – meeting one another there is how ideas are generated and how we continue to kind of keep love and service on the forefront of, of what we do and who we are. Yeah. It's a good question. I mean, that's a question for all of us to be wrestling with though um, in our small groups. Yeah. Cool. I'm reading the question. Okay, cool. That's a, just a statement, not a, not a question. Awesome. Sweet. Yeah, that it's an exciting book to read, or an exciting chapter to read, because of what it can mean for the Holy Spirit in our lives. Absolutely.
So um, that's all we got for this week. Adam, why don't you close us in prayer, and then I'll say one last word, um, and then we'll get out of here. Okay. Dear God, who binds us together with one another, um, help us feel, even in this time of physical distancing, that we are one with you and one with another, one another. Awaken our hearts to the need of our communities. And... Um, Awaken our eyes to the miracles that are already occurring around us. Amen. Amen. Cool. So next week uh, we're doing, I think, chapters three through eight or three through nine. Uh, so take a look at that. Make sure you read that. Um, also, feel free. We videotape these um, and we're recording them and posting them on the Vimeo page. I'll have it in the Friday email blast. Uh, but you're more than welcome to invite friends to attend. Thanks for joining us. We'd love to have you join us live or even digitally if you email us questions or anything, thoughts. We'd love to hear them so that you can be a part of the conversation, even if you're not there on Tuesday nights. Um, we're excited to see where all of this goes. Grateful that you've joined us this far on the conversation. We'll see you next week.